All right. Well, good morning, Anthem Church. Glad you guys are here. You can open your Bibles, Matthew chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, yeah, glad you guys are here. Thank you, Kenya. So uh, Matthew 6, and so we're going to be uh, talking about anxiety today, anxiousness. And so uh, really been fun to, to study this text out. But, but just to define that word before we get started is, is anxious. That's the experience of, of worry, this unease, this nervousness, typically about some imminent event or something that's uncertain, some uncertain outcome, which you're certain is going to be a bad outcome. And so that's what anxiousness is. And so the question this morning is, have you ever felt anxious about anything, you know, in your distant past? <laughs> or like right now, do you feel that as, as definitions of like, yeah, I feel some level of uncertainty? Uh, if you answered yes, you're not alone. The statistics, 1 in 13 globally suffer with the anxiousness. In fact, it's the most common mental illness in America. While it's 1 in 13 globally, uh, it's nearly 1 in 5 uh, would be diagnosed with this here and if you're a college student, the number starts to go through the roof. 85% of college students report feeling overwhelmed and just kind of like, again, we've been there. But like the reality is like, oh, and then you'll like one day get a job and not be able to swipe the meal card. And then like the anxiety is only going to creep in all the more. Uh, the challenges are coming. But one third of all college students would say that that anxiety actually affects their academic performance. And so Again, not trying to downplay, but this reality that it, it really affects a lot of people. And it's not a new issue. We're going to open up a text today that Jesus taught about anxiety a couple thousand years ago. And so, sure, the things that perhaps cause our anxiety may have changed throughout the course of time, but the, the root of anxiousness is the same. And so we're going to dive in today. And so Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to start in verse 25. And your Bible probably has a clean break there. Um, but he says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or you, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And so we're going we're gonna to stop there. And just you have to ask as you've studied your Bible, you have to ask when it starts with the therefore, you need to ask, what is it there for? <laughs> like, something really important was just said because he's saying, in light of that, because therefore, because of that, you shouldn't be anxious. You're like, wait a second, like, what just, why'd you break the paragraph here? And so some of y'all might have thought Matt just got a little lazy and stopped his last week, just mid kind of thought. It's like, no, we got to go back. And I'll, I, the paragraph break is unfortunate here because we got to go back and say, what just came right before this? that they were able to draw that conclusion. So we got to look back a few verses. In verse 22, let's start there. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, in light of that, in light of your dedication to the Lord and your service to him, then don't be anxious. Okay, so he sets it up. And so verse 24 kind of captures this, this are you serving God or are you serving money? And this is the only little g God that Jesus calls out by name. And the, the name for the little g God of money is mammon. 
And so why? Because I think money is often looked to to do in part what God can do in full. See, money offers this sense of security. It's a false sense of security, but nonetheless, if you think, wow, I've got a good amount of money. If my car breaks down or if something happens, we've got medical bills, we're good. And so money can offer this sense of security. It offers this sense of power, like, yeah, we can go do that thing. We can take that vacation or get that thing because we have money. And again, it can do a lot of things in part that ultimately God can do in full. The security that money can kind of offer, the real security is with the Lord. But nonetheless, it, it, it's kind of often the substitute, instead of worshiping God and serving God, people are like, well, I'm going to serve money, and, and they'll look to money for those things. And Jesus declares, if you bow your life to serving money, you can't serve God. They're heading in two different directions. They're at odds with each other. They'd be like trying to say, like, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play on Mizzou's football team and KU's football team at the same time. And some of you are like, I didn't know KU even had a football team. Well, they do. They're terrible. But, but, but nonetheless, it's like you, can't serve, like you can't play on both those teams at the same time. They want different things for you. And so what Jesus is saying here is you can't, serve money and serve God. You can't serve God plus whatever it is. And I think it's relevant in, in our, our time. There's a French sociologist, Jean Baldrid. He said this, arguing that atheism hasn't replaced cultural Christianity in the West. It's not that, that people went from being cultural Christians to like, well, I'm just going to deny the existence of God. This French sociologist said, shopping has replaced cultural Christianity. Materialism has become the new way of worship. See, our homes are twice the size as they were in the 50s, but our families are half the size. We have this consumer economy. At some point, there was just this shift in terms of how we just consume things. And so shopping is the new number one leisure activity. Amazon.com is the new temple Double-clicking is the new liturgy. Lifestyle bloggers are the priests and priestesses of our day. John, Macar uh, John Mark Comer is saying this in his book. He's like, money is the new God because of those things. And I would argue it's not a new God. It's just the same old thing that Jesus is referencing a couple thousand years ago. The psalmist said it like this, that surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. They in vain rush about heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. To which I would say that was relevant for them and even perhaps 50 years ago, like we're storing up things we don't know whose it would be, but, but now the stuff we're even storing up, even that we won't even actually be able to pass along. This is how, what I mean by this is like family heirlooms, you know what I'm talking about? Think of like this big dresser or mirror or something like a family heirloom we won't, this generation is not going to have those from our generation because that Ikea furniture is not going to make it in transit, right? Like that's, we just buy cheap crap is what I'm trying to illustrate. Like the stuff we have now, like it's just not even good. It just wears out. And we all know that like all that is like, they don't make it like they used to. You're right, they don't. Because I, why would they? We tire with stuff so instantly. We got to change it. We got to switch it up. And so the, the, you need to build things to last, that made sense when it was that kind of mentality. But with a consumer mentality, kind of our culture that we've created, you don't have to build things to last. You just have to build it to last enough for, for that season, that style, that fashion. Does that make sense? And so, so we, 
We're not going to be passing anything on. But we look to money to do these things. And Jesus is saying, if you do that, it's going to lead to anxiety. It's going to let you down. But if you seek to serve God, he says in verse 25, if that's who you're serving, then I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. The things that money would buy, food and drink, or about your body and what you'll put on. People will think, well, you're saying that we can't serve money, but we need it. Yes, see how the verse ends. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus acknowledges those things. You're going to need them. But he's saying it's more than just physical needs. And so he's got the crowd gathered together. Again, the context of this is the Sermon on the Mount. So there's this whole crowd there. And he's going to teach on anxiety. And as we go through this, look at what he's teaching, but how he's teaching it. In verse 26, again, the argument is you don't need to be anxious if you're serving God. And here's this kind of proof for that argument. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And so he starts by, in verse 26 by saying, would you look, would you consider the birds for just a second? We got plenty of birds here in Missouri, right? You got sparrows and cardinals and those ugly crows that are in the parking lot of shopping centers. Like there's birds everywhere, right? The rough estimates worldwide is there's roughly 2 billion to, oh, sorry, 200 billion to 400 billion birds. It's kind of a gap, but I don't know how you would count them all, but there's billions of birds. In fact, if you just break that down, it's like you could all have your own personal flock of birds, 40 to 60 birds per person worldwide, okay? There's certainly many more birds than there are are people, and I I think this is a great, like, consideration point for Jesus because there's birds literally everywhere, And Jesus is like, would you just consider them for a moment? Would you just consider them? And and what's he asking them to consider? He's like, would you consider, they don't have supermarkets. They don't have refrigerators. They don't sow their seeds and, and, and they don't store them up. Would you just consider that? And as you recognize, so then, well, how do they eat? How do they, how do they do it? What was his answer? Uh, their heavenly father feeds them. He didn't say your heavenly father (laughs) feeds them. And Jesus could have used the more formal name for God there, like he did just earlier in verse 24. But instead, he chose like the more paternal heavenly father, drawing out the relationship that they ought to have, not some distant supreme being like, "Oh, oh, you know, God just takes care of them. He's like, your father. And the reason he does that, he's saying, can you... Understand here, as you look at the birds that God spoke into existence, that are birds, can you consider that your heavenly Father, who you're creating in his image, if he's going to take care of them, he's probably going to take care of you. And so he's doing this to have them stop and consider. And so I'm just telling you, even this week as I'm, I'm working on this and working through my own things, sitting on the back porch and and it was one of those like light rains that we were having. And all of a sudden, like this hummingbird like comes darting through the rain. To which I'm amazed. I'm like, if a droplet of water hits that thing, it's dead. I'm pretty convinced of that. But it was just one of those moments where it's like, would you just 
consider. I don't know where that thing goes for shelter. I don't know how it's doing this, but, but God knows, and he considers them. And so what, an application, if you like, man, how do I apply this? Some of y'all just need to go get a bird feeder so you can literally just look at the birds and be reminded. And here's what I would want you to do. As you see a bird, be like, God feeds you. God takes care of the birds. And so they're all around us. And so I think they should ought to be a reminder is what Jesus is saying here in the text. But as it has it, we often don't slow down and just consider the birds. It's like, who's got time for that? It's turnover and I got to move locations or, or things at work and family and health. And, and we had this vacation that we had planned and who's going to watch the dog. And, and so we don't do a real great job of slowing down. Again, just shared with you as a whole we are more than twice as likely to, to suffer from anxiety, one of the richest nations. And so the reality is we don't do a great job of slowing down and considering the birds. And so we're talking about this in our connection group. And it feels like anxiety is one of those things that just kind of like presses in on you. It just creeps in your mind, your thoughts. Does, does that make sense? Like just starts pressing in on you and you're like, ah, I can't stop and consider these things. I've got to solve this stuff. And so we're talking about that in our connection group. And when anxiety starts to press in on you, there's typically two responses that happen. Some of you, when you start getting pressed in on, you're like, oh, that's how you want to play? You just hit back. And some of you, when you get pressed in on, you're like, no, can't press me. You just like shrink away. And what I mean by that is, is those who like want to hit back, like when anxiety's pressing on you, you're like, okay. And you try and take control. You hit back. You, you're, I'm going to research this. I'm going to plan this out. I'm going to do it out. I'm going to play it over and over in my mind, and I'm going to be like the lawyer, and I'm going to, I'm going to have this argument until I have it down pat. And so you take over. You, you take special precautions. And so when this starts to press in on you, you press back by more taking control and hitting back. Some of you, when, when it starts to kind of press in on you, you're like, nah, not me. You're like, I'm just going to deny its existence. You're just going to Netflix, veg out, like you can't press me down because I'm just going to just shrink away. There's typically like one of those responses is, is typical of people to which Jesus is like, how about neither of those? What Jesus is saying here is what you ought to do is you ought to stop and consider the birds. I'm not asking you to just play over your problems over and over. I'm not asking you to deny their existence and run away. I'm just asking you to stop and consider the birds. Would you? Would you look at them? That's what Jesus is, is telling us to do, to reflect on how God has provided for them. And not only is the argument that Jesus is making important, but look at how he makes it. He's asking them to reflect, which is the antidote to worry. See how he does it in the next verse. Again, I think we're hard on hearing, so Jesus is going to give us the argument again. Verse 28, he says, And why are you anxious about clothing? Ask the question. Why? Consider. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. So again, he's asking the question, so why? why are you anxious about these things? With the birds, he's like, would you look at the birds? With the flowers, he's like, would you just consider what God does for them? He's taking notes. Anxious people or anxiousness, even if you don't want to be labeled as an anxious person, but anxiousness typically brings with tiredness with it. When you're anxious, you're tired because he says if you're not trusting God, 
the toiling and the spinning, it becomes up to you in toiling and spinning. And so what I'm saying is, have you ever heard someone say, it's like, man, I'm just, I'm just so anxious, but I feel so refreshed. So no anxious person ever, right? And like anxiousness brings about this tiredness because you're trying, it's hard work to try and keep everything under control. It's hard work to play the role of God. And so it's exhausting trying to, to manage everything, to toil and spin and have it all come together. And so anxious people or anxiousness typically brings exhaustion. And with that, anxious people are typically not happy people. Not happy because if you're anxious and you expected it to work out this way and you had it all mapped out, all of a sudden you're going to be constantly disappointed by others, by the situation, by things not going your way. When you're in line and that person in front of you, they got to go do a price check. An anxious person, they're going to get frustrated by that. <laughs> Some of you are like, uh-oh, were you behind me? Yeah, I saw you. I don't know. No, no. But like, you know what I'm talking about where it's like anxious people, when you are toiling and spinning, it's going to manifest itself and you're exhausted and you're not happy, not pleasant. Not able to slow down, because that's what he's saying is you ought to be moving at a pace where you can actually look at the birds, where you're actually considering. Corey Ten Boom said it like this, worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. Or Todd Van Voorst, one of our elders said, he said, when you worry, you suffer twice. You ruin today, and you still have to endure tomorrow. Which is why Jesus is saying, uh, what, what does this anxiousness bring about? It doesn't change your circumstances whatsoever. You're just zapping the strength. And so worry, is, worry takes faith, by the way. It's a faith in this unshakable belief that, that tomorrow there's going to be an unfortunate future. And worry just entices you and it insists that the dire prediction despite the track record of all the past worry that hasn't been, you know, all that has been trumped up to be, it entices you and it asks you to have a level of faith that it really, but this time it's really going to be bad. This time if you play it out, then it'll be better. Just have the argument in your head. And so worry, is, it, it invokes like this level of faith or trust. And so instead of dwelling on God, we dwell on the problems, and it's this cycle that as we dwell on the problems, that's less time to actually reflect on God. And so the more we dwell on the problems, the cycle continues and continues. He goes on, he said in verse 29, I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God, again, listen to the argument, the question, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not? much more clothe you. Again, Jesus is not only providing the argument, but how he's, he's asking these questions. I think one of the things that's been helpful is just this simple thing is like, what we worry about is ultimately what we worship. Because worry is allowing your mind to dwell. You're dwelling, you're thinking, you're rehearsing those difficulties and troubles. And so what you worry about is reflecting what you ultimately value, what your life revolves around, what you worship, if you will. 
So what you worry about is what you worship. And you might not have thought of it like that, but, but just reflect on that. And so if you're like, well, I mean, I, I worship God. I just am really concerned with financially how I'm going to be provided for and, and what this looks like, and I've got payments to make, and I don't know what my job's going to do. And so my mind, my energy, and my emotions are revolving around this. And so what you worry about is what you worship. Maybe it's, maybe it's family. And these can be good things. It's not to say that, that family and a job and those things aren't good things, but they're just not God. They're not worth orienting your life around and ultimately worshiping. For me, one of those things that I find myself orienting time and energy around, even as I'm prepping for this, is really I have a desire to be liked, which again isn't wrong, but it's a wrong thing to try and orient your life and leadership around is trying to make decisions that please people. There are just sometimes where you're not going to please everybody, and in the process, you're going to do more damage, I'm learning, by trying to, to orient around that rather than just seeking to please the Lord. If you don't know what I'm talking about, even if you don't orient your life around that, if you've ever had to work out holidays with the in-laws or with your family and you have your immediate family and then you have your extended family and you just want everybody to be happy, but they all want to, nobody? Okay, for me, like that is like every time. I think in, in leadership, it's just really, it becomes paralyzing where it's like, well, I don't know, and I just was on the phone this week with, with Pastor Tom, who I can't wait to share with you this spring. He's, he's in his late 80s now, super godly guy, and I was just kind of recalling like this toil that, that I was putting myself through and rehearsed my insecurity and my desire to be liked. And, and Tom, this is paraphrased, but it was short. He's like, well, why didn't you just do what the Bible said? Why didn't, you, why didn't you just try and please God and let others, you know, kind of fall in line with that. So I'm like, what a novel idea. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know why I didn't think of that. I was worried and I was anxious and I was looking at my problems and I was trying to solve it how I would. And Tom's saying, no, just come back. And you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what the future holds, but you ought to know who holds it. And so it's a trusting God. It's not shrinking back or hitting back. Neither are going to produce this desirable outcome. What Jesus would say for anxiety is, is to stop the worrying, is to start considering what God has done, his provision for birds and flowers. Would you look? Would you remember? And so with that, I'm just going to share, this is kind of out of my notes, but just this idea, what's the other alternative? If we're not going to stop and we're not going to consider the Lord and what he would have for those next steps, Here's the other alternative, which you might be all too familiar with. And if you read the Old Testament, this is the nation of Israel over and over again. If you're not going to say, okay, God, I'm looking to you. Your will be done. What would you have? If you're not saying your will be done, then it's my will be done. And here's the pattern we see throughout Scripture and perhaps you've experienced in my life. I'm not going to seek God. I'm not going to stop and consider. I'm going to do my thing. And all of a sudden, you like keep going. And then you just find yourself starting to drown, being just suffocated by the, the worry and the anxiety that comes from trying to do things apart from God and do your own way. And you just find yourself like in that. And then without fail, we see in scripture, and I know personally for me, it's like you're drowning. You're like, Lord, would you help me? God, I've made a mess. And you, and you just come back and you're like, God, thank you. And God graciously like just takes us back. And he's like, oh, 
The thing that, that put us back, that brought our head above water, is seeking God, turning. And it took drowning in order to solicit that right response. But nonetheless, it was seeking God that ultimately pulled us from that position and fixing our eyes on Jesus that pulled us out from under the waves. I'm like, oh, thank you. So anyways, and then you go back to this thing, and we see this throughout. And if you don't believe me, read the Old Testament. Read the nation of Israel. They can thank God. Thank you for this bread, this manna from heaven in the morning. Oh, look at that. And then in the afternoon, they're like bowing down and worshiping something else. And I'm saying, we do that. That's not them. That's in us, that condition, that sinful nature, that, that God ultimately is what we ought to be seeking. But instead, we have a tendency, do we not, to try and do it our own way, to try and, and the only way out of that drowning is to turn and see God. And what Jesus is invoking in this teaching is like, imagine if we didn't have to do that cycle. <laughs> just think with me a moment. Imagine if you actually just sought God continually and didn't wait till drowning and we could just be in this position. And I know for my daughters, that's not the kind of relationship that I want to have where they just turn to daddy when they need something. But yet I fear that, that some of us have been duped in that kind of relationship with the Lord. Or it's like, yeah, we'll cry out to God. <laughs> my, prayers, my prayers are not one of reflection. But they're just one of petitions. God, would you do this for me? God, I need you to do this. I'm crying out. And I think Jesus is trying to, to help us understand, no, there's a different way to do this. And if we would look at the birds, literally look at the birds, stop and smell the roses, if you will, that in doing so, we can remember that God is the one that provides. And we're, we're more valuable than these things, which are temporary. And it ought to bring about this gratitude and delight, which gratitude and delight are a, a killer of anxiety and fear. They put those things to death. People that just, there's a level of gratitude and a joyfulness to them. Anxiety and fear don't follow them in those ways. And perhaps you know those people in your life that, that they, are just, they are just filled with joy and gratitude. And again, I, I think of especially like people when you get later on in life, perhaps you have those grandparents. They, one of two ways. They're the grandparents that... They just want to give everybody sugar and presents and spoil everybody. It's just like, oh, I'm just grateful to be alive. Or just nothing can go right. And here's the reality is, is when you have people in your life that are just filled with such joy, they're so content with the Lord, there's so much freedom in having relationship with those people. Because <laughs> you can't let them down. Because God is God. You don't have to be God for them. Here's the reality is, is, is we will let people down. We, when, when people allow God to be God, then we don't have to be. And that is such a freeing thing because we can't be. We cannot be God. We are going to be broken. We are going to be sinful. We are going to let people down. And when people acknowledge that and they're not looking for us to be God, there's a level of freedom in that. And here's the reality is, is is if you're not allowing your spouse to just be the broken person in need of grace and you've got them trying to be God, man, it's going to hurt when they fall from that spot, which they inevitably will. When you expect your boss, your employer, 
to be God and not let you down. Dare I say, when you expect your pastor, I will let you down. But it is not for those that would be connected and God is God. And there's a level of freedom that comes from that. And it's a freedom that's given to others where it's, you're not my source of security. You're not my source of hope, my source of joy. That resides solely with God because I look at the birds, I consider the fields, and therefore I don't have to be anxious about these things and worked up and worried. Because my joy doesn't rest on you. There's a freedom that that ought to bring about. And he says, and he says, therefore, don't be anxious when God is God and you're seeking him first. Don't be anxious and say, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those that don't know God, that's what they do. They seek after these things. But your heavenly father, again, that use, your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these things will be added to you. Is Jesus saying that we're not going to have problems? Is that what he's saying here? It's like, oh, if you just see God, then I guess everything's going to work out. No. <laughs> we know from the context of all of Scripture, and again, the one that gives this teaching that's ultimately going to be crucified, clearly problems are going to be in store for those that follow him. Paul would tell the Corinthians this. He would say in 1 Corinthians 4.11, Even now we go hungry and thirsty. We don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We are often beaten and have no home. Don't mistake the words of Jesus, the teaching here, as a promise for prosperity. God's not promising that we're not going to have trials. And here's the reality. A fragile person, a fragile person prays for a life without trials. Prays for a life without opposition. They ask God to, to reinvent the world free from trials and free from opposition. That's what fragile thinking does. It can't, ex, it can't accept the fact that, that trials might be part of God's process to grow you. And so, Lord, just take them away. I would beg you to, to, to not see trials as that be contradictory to scripture saying God's doing something through that. The, the right mentality is anti-fragile mentality, acknowledges trials and sees them as an opportunity to lean into the Lord. Sees them as an opportunity when they're getting pressed to say, Lord, you're enough and look and gaze on him. Trials ought to bring about that. And in, even in the suffering, we get to share in that with Jesus and become more like him. And so it's not this promise of prosperity, but it's this promise that despite whatever comes, that we can have peace. Paul would tell the Philippians in chapter 4, it's on the screen in verse 11, he says, I've learned in whatever situation that I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any, in every circumstance. Let that sink in a little bit. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of contentment that is facing plenty or hunger and abundance and a need. That secret being that I can do all things through him, through Christ who gives me strength, through him who gives me strength. I know you've seen that on some athletic wear somewhere, some power lifter having that. No. <laughs> what was the context? It's, it's about contentment. How can I be content? Because if I have Jesus, I have enough. That's how. 
And so we got to understand the context of that. And what he says, he links that in verse 33, if you just seek first the kingdom of God, if you do that, then therefore, verse 34, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It's not to say that those things are going to be eliminated, but again, how we go about those things is, is if we seek first and we have Jesus, then we ought to have enough in the level of freedom that that ought to bring. Because there are some serious unknowns right now. Be it with a virus, be it with your work, family. It, it, we live, and I think that's been exposed. It's always been like that. All of a sudden, it takes this level, of the year 2020, to, to really expose. It's like, who knows? You know? In that regard, I, normally I want to hit back, but 2020, I'm like, all done. I, I give, okay? <laughs> this, is, this is what we teach our kids. All done. I uh, feel like I've been doing that since, like, May. All done. Uh, but this reality is like... I, we don't know, but despite that, like, we can have it if we have Jesus. So whatever tomorrow comes, whatever brings in those unknowns, and if we have God, that ought to be enough. He ought to provide the strength, is what he's saying, for those in any and every circumstance who provide the strength. And so how do you seek first? If that's the thing, like, how do you then do that? It was a novel idea. Okay, yep, turn, seek God. How? <laughs> it's a simple answer, but how do you actually functionally do that? And the application, y'all, is in the text a little bit. And we've been saying it, but just to, to clarify, how do you seek God? Stop. Consider, would you look? Would you look at the birds and say, I know who feeds you? <laughs> Would you consider the flowers? He's saying, would you reflect not on your problems, not on what's causing you anxious, but would you, would you think about what God has done? Would you stop and would you consider? Philippians 4 earlier said this. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure. Sorry, I memorized an NIV. Whatever is lovely, commendable. If there is anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. See, don't think about all these things that got you drowned, but think about these things. And what you've learned and received and heard and seen to me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Jesus modeled what he's teaching here often by withdrawing to lonely places to just pray and to seek first God. What did Jesus do before he entered in his ministry? Forty days of praying and fasting. Saying, God, I need you. What did he do before he went to the cross? He's in the garden praying, God, I need you. The disciples, they're sleeping. Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to... I'm going, to do the, I'm going to seek God through prayer. Another way, just by way of application, how do you seek first? Part of it, again, from the text, the application is there, is just to, to slow down. Slow down. I don't perceive that Jesus was that fast of a walker. How I know that is we see somebody died waiting for him to get there. Right? Like Jesus is on his way to go heal somebody. They're like, Serious, Jesus, they're dying. He's like, 
be there in a couple days. <laughs> you know, like Jesus, they died before he gets there. You know, on his way there for one of the healings, it's like, hey, somebody touch me. Hey, let's have a conversation. You need healing and he heals. I'm like, Jesus was not in a hurry. Now, he resurrected that person, don't get me wrong, but he just, I don't think Jesus was frantic and just slowing down. In fact, there might be a correlation from the, the smartest people you know in your life that have the most wisdom, the speed of which they walk. Slow down. One of the ways for me, it's not just like physical movement, but just even dumbing this thing down. I think those moments of prayer and seeking God can be consumed by like, what's the weather doing? What's the barometric pressure on the deer movement today? You know, like there's just things that you just chew up time on phone. What's the, the what's my high school buddies up to? I don't know. Social media will tell me. Like this phone can be the thing where I've just noticed like figuring out some ways to dumb this thing down, how it's brought about more freedom to actually spend time in prayer. Those five or ten minutes, turning the radio off on on the vehicle, like those times to be able to spend them in prayer by dumbing this thing down. Just a life hack. You can go and you can set like an automatic response when you're driving. It's a feature. You like flip it on. You're like, I'm driving. And it'll send somebody a text. Because we have a culture now, at least one that I feel like a creator. You text me, I'll text you right back. Try that with Matt Dennings, who's on our staff, by the way. You text him, <laughs> it just goes off into space. I don't even know if he has a phone. But, like, but nonetheless, like the culture I feel like I've created, like you text me, text me back. Well, this is a way where I just set up the driving feature. I edited the message. You can text me if you want. It, it's not going to come through, uh, but it'll send you a text back. And it's kind of nice where it's like, ah, I text them back. And I'll get to it when I'm done meeting with God, being with my family. That's just brought about so much freedom. Put my phone on grayscale so I'm not like, I'm colorblind, but even the colors I do see can kind of be like overstimulating and like, ooh, look at that. You watch it in black and white. It's not that cool anymore. There's ways I'm just trying to dumb down my phone so that I can seek God. That's for me. I don't know what it is for you, what's got you so hurried and going. And again, if there's a hurriedness to you, there's going to be a tiredness to you, likely a grumpiness to you, and ultimately you're going to be missing out on what God would have for you. I don't know what it means in terms of application for you, but, but not only what Jesus taught, but what he modeled here. A Sabbath day, keeping holy the Sabbath, and I understand that that's not a command that is just you have to do it, much like tithing. There, there's, a, there's a level of freedom, but the principles are there. God rested on the seventh day. Do you take a day to just rest? There's a religious group, the Seventh-day Adventists, that are religious about the Sabbath. Like, that's their thing. Seventh-day Adventists, like they set apart. And I'm not condoning all the teachings of the church. I don't know, but I do know this, that when they studied this out, these guys are taking a, a Sabbath day where they don't work. And, and what they've found is not only are they healthier, they're living as, as much as 10 years longer than the rest of us. No, no matter the, the demographic, race, all that stuff, 10 years longer. You want to know what a lifelong of taking a Sabbath ends up to be in terms of amount of time? Ten years. And God gives them that back, but it's are you seeking God? Are you doing that? What are the rhythms of, that you are implementing to seek first? See, it's not just about doing the disciplines and checking. It's like, well, the Bible reading, I did that. And you have this mentality. It's like, because that's what's going to make God happy. No, I read my Bible because I need to align with God. He doesn't need me to read my Bible. I do. 
God doesn't need me to pray, but I need to pray. I need to stop. I need to consider. Even prayer and fasting, some of the gals in our connection group are just picking a day to do that together, where they'd seek God together. Maybe it's practicing simplicity. I don't know, but I just want us to, to think differently about spiritual disciplines as a way to actually commune with our Father instead of not being disciplined, going about our own way, getting pressed in on drowning, and then crying out to God. What are the normal rhythms where we can cry out to God and seek him and do the relationship that way? Man, I just want to rethink that. And we understand that even just from an earthly standpoint. It's like that's no way to do a friendship or a marriage or a relationship where it's like, well, you let me know when it gets really bad and you just have to meet with me and then we'll get together. But what are the regular rhythms and disciplines in order to keep that relationship? And here's the thing. is Nick was praying last term. It just reminded me that, that God, his desire is that he would be our good shepherd, that he would guide us in those ways. And again, we can seek God and we can trust in his goodness because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. And so I'm going to invite the band up and, and Matt to lead us in communion. And again, all of this makes sense that we can trust God in his goodness, that we can follow him because he does have our best interest in mind. Not only eternally, but here and now, God does have our best interest in mind. In his way, in his plan for the things that would make us anxious are much better than our plan. And so you can close your notes and I just want to give you a chance to reflect and just ask the question, what is it that you're worrying about? What is it that is consuming time, energy, and motion? And just ask the question, have I over-prioritized something here? And it's not to minimize the trial, but again, is the worry altering that in any way? I just want to invite you to just go ahead and let the Holy Spirit work on your heart and reveal some of those things that perhaps you need to turn over to God right now. And so just invite you to reflect on those things that, that are drawing your attention. And we're going to have an opportunity to really fix our attention, our gaze on Jesus with communion here and worship and response.